podcast was recorded on July 30th, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Doubleline Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. Doubleline has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Hey everybody, welcome to the Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman here with my co-host Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have a very, very, very special guest. Um, she is an executive pri- vice president and the chief investment officer for the Wealth Management Business at Northern Trust. And her name is Katie Nixon. Welcome, Katie. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, and so uh, we've known we've known you and your entity for a long period of time. And so, um, as a CIO, I really want to dig into some of your inner workings, your thinkings, um, how you're helping prepare clients. But before you do, uh, what we really want to do real quick. We had an important economic day today. Uh, we got our first, well, one of the worst GDP prints ever in the post World War II era. And so, I want Sam to kick off just a really brief economic roundup. Then we'll jump into talking to you, Katie. Okay? Great. All right. So, Sam, I'm excited because we finally got the worst GDP report in the post-World War II era. And what was that number? Oh, man, yeah, on a quarter-over-quarter, seasonally adjusted, annualized rate of negative 32.9%. So just shy of that negative 33% on the annualized rate. So So I want to make sure everybody doesn't think I'm excited because the economy contracted that much, but it was uh, much better than probably we would have thought a few months back when people were talking about negative 50 and negative 60%. So Yeah, I think it did come in a little bit better than expectations too so there's something you know there's your silver lining jeff for for that portion of it um so on the year-over-year basis if we look at it um on the nominal basis it's still down it's down negative nine percent and on the real basis down negative nine and a half percent as you mentioned this is the worst in the post-world war ii era you know of course you're going to have other people come out and say it's not the worst there's always a you know a a worse one, but those predated World War II. And I'm not even sure what series they used if they cobbled something together because the Bureau of Economic Analysis only takes us back to 1946 on the nominal basis and then adjusting for inflation, they bring it back to 1947, sorry. Hey, uh, and you know that one member of our team came out and, and, and showed something about the UK and said it was in 310 years of history in their report too. So uh, regardless, we can all agree that it was pretty poor. It was pretty bad, agreed, yeah. So, and it was really driven by the uh, consumption side from the from the consumers, but also on the investment uh, side from uh, corporations as well as private investments also uh, dipped sharply negative. Uh, the government's uh, actually was a little bit positive as you would expect given all the federal the federal um, stimulus that measures that we've been seeing, but it was dragged down slightly based on a decline, decreased uh, spending in, or activity in terms of the the state and local government. So overall, pretty dismal. I don't know if there's any other way to spin it, but other than saying it's just pretty dismal. So we'll see if we you know things carry on on some of the themes that we've been talking about, where you have that sharp reversal after the the record worst, you get the record best. You know, but I don't really see that happening. This. Uh, for this data series, at least. 
So yeah, no, exactly. So I mean, look, on top of that, um, you know, how's the jobless situation come from? I know we've been debating the integrity of some of these data sets when it comes to the unemployment assistance. So uh, where, where did that data shake out today and how are you thinking about it? Yeah, so if we look at the OG data set for the jobless claims using the state level data on the initial front, initial jobless front, it was uh, 1.4 million individuals filed for initial claims. That's up about 12,000 over the previous period. So you're seeing that second month, I've, I want to say it's the second month of tick up in, in claims, which has been the somewhat of a reversal of the previous trend. Uh, on the continuing front, you ha you still have over 17 million individuals continuing to receive state-level unemployment, uh, and that's a rather big move from the prior month. Uh, it's, it's up about 870 individuals uh, from the previous month, so that definitely uh, does not uh, bode well as well for for the jobless claims here at least. And then when we bring in the PUA, what that we call it, the P Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program, which is special to the to that most recent CARES Act that was put out either in late March or early April, I want to say, um, where you have the special benefits to those who are ineligible for this, you know, the the traditional jobless benefits. But that all in, including in, including everything, both the traditional and the non-traditional through PUA, is right about 30 million individuals. Uh, as you pointed out, that number is a little bit suspect because if I read correctly from uh, uh, Ryan's uh, economic update, he was saying that it was Florida and Virginia that both have not reported their PUA numbers for the last two periods, which would make it about 3 million uh, light in terms of the, the total amount of people on the PUA program. Yeah, and for those of you who don't know Ryan, he was a previous guest on the Sherman Show. He just goes by Ryan at Double Line. Uh, but um, if you're interested in his uh, qualifications to question that report, he was a professional surfer. So, um, again, if you want to go back and li listen to that, uh, but Ryan's one of our uh, analysts on the macro team. He does a great job and in, in summarizes data prints. Yeah. So this the data point, uh, at least what came out uh, today is just not pretty, Jeff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And I mean, look, uh, at the end of it, too, we had the expiration of the unemployment benefits over the weekend. We have our uh, our reliable senators and Congress uh, folks out there. Um, you know, uh, they're reliable and not getting things done in a timely manner, bickering over what this next program will look like. I think the opening bid from the Dems was three trillion. Uh, the counteroffer from the Senate uh, from the GOP uh, was about a one trillion. Uh, most people think that this number will settle in the one and a half to one seven range in, in that. But it's going to be not just uh, things about unemployment, but it's going to be kitchen sink to help schools, uh, local governments alike. So I don't expect that to get done in, in much of the near term. I know Congress leaves in about uh, 11 days or so uh, for recess, assuming they don't extend it. So hopefully, um, you know, the, your elected officials get together and try to give people some assistance. We'll see what that looks like. Obviously, this has been a big shit shot in the arm uh, for the the economy, uh, seeing incomes grow up, go up significantly, even though that consumption data was so bad. Imagine what it would have looked like without uh, those replacement checks with the $1,200 stimulus or these unemployment benefits. So. Anyway, um, that being said, um, you know, I guess as we think about it too, there was the expectations in the consumer board, right, where you talk about people's expectations for the uh, for the current situation as well as for the future, and we saw really declining numbers on both sides there. 
uh, this week. What really got me was that the, the biggest declines were in, uh, as you guessed it, probably California, Florida, and Texas, as we've seen a significant rise in cases there. So I think the, um, you know, although some of the worst is behind us, uh, we still can't uh, take our eyes off the, the goal here. And that's, uh, you know, getting people back to work, uh, getting the economy back in shape, and uh, hopefully digging ourselves out this massive deficit it's going to take to help support that. Yeah, it's certainly a reflection of the vicissitude of the um, the, pan the pandemic-related closures and openings, right? And that's a new word that I learned today. I just wanted to throw it into the into yeah. The it sounded like you learned it because the, you you kind of paused after you said it, thinking, "Am I using it correctly?" So. <laughs> With that, uh, we'll stop our little banter here and move on to the important part of the show, and that's talking with Katie Nixon. So, Katie, once again, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know life as a CIO can't be very easy these days. So um, what I'd like to do is really uh, put a little bit about your background. You know, um, I know you went to Wellesley. Uh, you got an MBA at NYU Stern School of Business. Um, you know, you're, you're the CIO of the wealth management business. Maybe you could take us a little bit in your background. Um, you know, when you were growing up, did you always want to be a CIO or you know, how did you think about your academic and career paths? Jeff, yes, I always wanted to be a CIO, even as a tiny tot. Um, no, not at all. I, I, I am a big believer in uh, luck over skill sometimes, and I was very lucky after uh, college to be recruited uh, by U.S. Trust, actually, which is now part of uh, Bank of America, where I became a portfolio manager and then learned to love the investment business. I hadn't really thought about it too much as an undergrad. I went to a liberal arts college. So I was very, uh, very lucky to really fall into uh, fall into this this area and then really develop a passion for it and then uh, was at U.S. Trust for 18 years and many years ago uh, transitioned over to Northern Trust where I've been their CIO for uh, for quite a while now. So you've always been the trust business, it sounds like, U.S. Trust, Northern Trust. Um, you know, mm -hmm. when, you, when you think about that, you know, um, you went from a portfolio manager to a CIO. How was how that transition the role? We've had a few CIOs on here, and I think a lot of people don't really know the inner workings of that of that um, that kind of title. And so, you know, some people do it from, you know, as you, you came up in the portfolio management side, uh, some of it are more macro thinkers. H how do you think about your role as a CIO and what you learned as a portfolio manager, how that assists you in that role? Gosh, Jeff, that is such a good question because I think that I don't know if I would be able to be successful as a CIO without having had that client-facing experience, frankly, the real-world, non-ivory tower um, experience of sitting in front of clients and talking through their 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 risks, their risk tolerance, and their portfolio. So, yeah, I mean, I think you have to marry the two. I mean, clearly right now I'm in a, I'm in a policy role, uh, investment policy, asset allocation policy, driving strategies and fulfillment, um, but I always think about it through the lens of the client. So it's a very different lens, and it's always very apparent to me as I go through my day that we're dealing with people's money. That's a huge um, responsibility, and I feel it because I've sat, I've been in the in the conference room with these people. I've been dealing with these families, um, so I know how incredibly important these assets are. It's not just an academic exercise. So I love that I'm able to marry that practical experience um, with this more strategic role. Right, and I, I think it's important too because as a practitioner, you know, there's no substitute for experience and. You know, as you mentioned, doing the role back at U.S. Trust for 18 plus years, um, what, what are some of the key experiences you think 
um, have helped mold you in having that empathy with the client, understanding that needs. And then maybe you could talk about how that was applied during this most recent bout with this pandemic. Right. So I think what's what's interesting to me is it's and this is my perspective, but I think it's relatively easy to um, to be empathetic and to build relationships during good times. You know, everyone's feeling good. The market's going up. That meetings are all really happy. It's when the rubber hits the road that you really need to turn on that EQ and really get into the, 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 the mindset and the seat of the client and try to understand what they're going through because what they're going through is not the same as what the advisor is going through. They're, they're dealing with what is one of the most powerful emotions, and that is fear. They're afraid. They don't know what's happening. They're, they're, things are very uncertain. So it's being able to really understand what drives those uh, those feelings and try to deal with those. And you can't do it in an academic way. I mean, I remember so well thinking back to 2008, 2009, and I was sitting in a room with someone who was explaining what was going on to a client. And they said, oh, you know, this is a three standard deviation event, basically trying to tell them, like, it's so unusual, you shouldn't you know, it's unpredictable. Therefore, you know, we, no one has any responsibility over this event. And the client sort of stared at them and said, you know, first of all, I don't know what standard deviation means. <laughs> and right. I'm not really sure what that, what that means to me at this moment. So um, I think that it's those kinds of lessons where you say, you know, we need to change our vernacular. We need to change the way that we communicate probably always, but in particular, during times of market stress. And certainly we've seen this, Jeff, in the last couple of months. My goodness. I mean, you can't just throw statistics at, uh, at, at clients when you've got the market gapping down, limit down, you know, day after day after day after day. You've got to pull out some other tools. Yeah, and that's where I think some of the psychology and, as you mentioned, the empathy comes in where – you know, you're not trying to ascribe some scientific or mathematical term, but uh, there's one thing I want to pick up on that you said there that at least you were honest with your clients when you said it was a three sigma event. I remember hearing some market calls where people were talking about 15 and 18 sigma <laughs> event. I'm like, I remember uh, my boss at the time, um, he said, I think your sigma's wrong, buddy. <laughs> you know, so yeah, um, exactly. Because, you've got yeah. you've got to go back to the model at that point. Yeah, I think so because I think that's you know once in the since the inception of the overall um, uh, the inception of the universe is a fifteen sigma event. But uh, not to digress there. So you know w with that and trying to think about those tools, how have you how did your uh, approach change or was it very similar in this bout? You're comparing it to two thousand eight. You know, given what yeah. you learned there and and no substitute for experience. How did that come through? So it's it, it, you've, you've really made me think about this a, a little bit more than I typically do because you asked about my experience sort of coming through the ranks as a portfolio manager. And I always thought sort of for my first couple of decades, actually, in this business that every client's goal was more. There, to varying degrees, right, Jeff? Like, I just want more. I want to maximize my end wealth with whatever, through whatever risk tolerance lens you want to use. And what I learned, and I learned it in 2008, that is not everyone's, that's not a goal. That may be a means to an end, but that in and of itself is not a goal. So what we learned is using maximized wealth, you know, up from a, a risk adjusted perspective, it's a very inadequate way of managing um, private wealth. 
Um, as I mentioned before, clients don't understand standard deviation. So you can show them all the, the analysis that you want to drive to what their risk tolerance is. And what do we know? We know they don't understand it, and we know it changes. And we know that it changes at the most inopportune time when the market's down. We saw this in March, and we certainly saw that in 2008, 2009, when you sit across from a client and they say, I don't know why I was in this portfolio. You, I didn't understand that this could happen to me. Therefore, I need to do something. You've got that sort of fight or flight instinct that, that kicks in. So I think what I learned back then, which is why we started at Northern to really go down this path of, of developing a more goals-based approach is you can't use standard deviation as a measure of risk tolerance for, for private clients. It just doesn't work. And it doesn't work when you, you know, when you really need it to work. Um, so we needed a different way of establishing risk preferences and risk tolerance. And we need a, needed a better way of designing portfolios more around goals, around outcomes um, versus around some amorphous maximize wealth. Uh, as, we, as I said before, wealth is a means to an end. What we need to understand as advisors is what is that end? Because goals are different. They require different strategies. Some require a lot of risk to, to fund. Others don't. So we want to make sure that we're appropriately allocating risk across the spectrum of clients' goals so that when times do get tough, clients have a more intuitive understanding about why their portfolio is the way it is, and they're much more apt to stay in their seat. And we saw that in spades um, during this latest bout of, uh, I mean, we saw it in spades when we had, you know, a tough quarter in 2018 and into 2019. That was very short-lived. Um, and we saw it again this time when we had a really steep drawdown um, from, you know, March, obviously, well, through, through February down into March. And we've had a nice upturn since then. Yeah. And so you make you mentioned this kind of maximizing wealth, and it always comes back to kind of the optimization equations. And if you think about the field of economics, it's maximizing utility. But you mm -hmm. know, we have utility and risk aversion. All that means is that really what you're trying to do once again is maximize the geometric return because risk aversion in there kind of counts for the volatility. And so you know, I, I think it's a very interesting thing that you bring up that you're talking about goals. And we've been talking to some folks over the last year or so about this same idea. What is it meant by goals? Because I think, you know, as you mentioned, when you first get in the business, you think it's all about return maximization, maximizing end wealth. But you realize that sometimes in the private client space, which you deal heavily with, right, that these people got wealthy already. They were risk takers. Mm -hmm. so they got lucky, as you said, too, in some instance, right? They already had that good event and they don't want to press their luck. So how do you how do you throw this into your office? How do you actually go about sitting down with the client, identifying goals? And then how do you implement some portfolio solutions for those goals? So it's a great question, especially now with, um, and we can get into this later if you want to, Jeff, but with an, an environment that would suggest very low returns going forward. Um, obviously, fixed income, we, we may not even have to talk about that. That just seems so obvious, um, but even on the risk asset side. Um, and so with very low returns, um, some people may have to take risk in order to meet their goals. So what we want to do is we want to identify how much risk you have to take. So the first, the starting point is obviously goals are funded with dollars. They're funded in, in, in present value, value dollars. So we can figure out today what it's going to cost you for a lifetime of goals, whether it's lifestyle goals or family goals, philanthropic goals, goals that you just want to buy stuff at a certain point in time. So we can bring that all back to present value. 
then based on your assets, we can tell you how much risk do you have to take. And for a lot of clients, as you said, Jeff, they've already made a lot of money. So for them, risk relative to their goals may be a preference. You know, they may be able to fulfill all their goals with a minimum risk portfolio and not have to take a lot of risk asset risk. For other clients, the, the clients, though, they may have more present value goals than they have assets, in which case they do have to take risk. So you really want to be almost surgical in determining what level of risk you want to take by goal. And then how do you invest toward that goal with the highest degree of confidence? Right. So if, I, if I'm going to take risk, we always we have this mantra, risk and reward are related. We want to make sure that we're getting our fair share of the return for the for the amount of risk that we take. Um, so it's a really a very customized process and it relies a lot on really understanding what a client's goals are, measuring those goals and then really understanding uh, what their asset base is. And it's not just most of the time it's financial assets, but it can be human capital. So we right. want to take that into consideration also. Yeah, that's the beauty. Uh, you know, uh, when when you have uh, youth on your side, the human ca capital is is almost limitless. But at some point, uh, that, that part of the equation gets diminished. But I'm glad you brought that up because that's something but, a lot of people don't think about. Well, you also have time on your side when you're younger. And that's another issue, I think, now. And obviously, you know, I, I am very fortunate to work with clients that – uh, that have a lot of options, but as I think through some of the the investor challenges going forward, um, I can't help but note the low return environment and thinking about a lot of investors for whom a they don't have a lot of time in terms of a runway, um, and b they may not have saved enough in terms of of assets in order to meet their their lifetime of goal. So it's a conundrum. No, absolutely, uh, and then that's probably the biggest thing. So when you when you're trying to help these folks, and, and you know, sitting in your role as a CIO, I, I'm sure you're not hands on with every single client. Um, what what do you bring into your toolkit? Like, how how are you thinking about things? Are you trying to think about the macroeconomic landscape? Are you looking at the reality, as you said, of valuation today? How are you trying to put this all together to give your advisors access to kind of your thinking and how you can help use your experience to guide people? It's, it's all of the above, Jeff, and I'm really fortunate to be part of a broad team at Northern Trust that focuses on investment policy and investment strategy. And so we take into account all of the stuff that, that you and Sam were talking about. It's interesting to hear you guys banter about the macro mire, frankly, that we're in and what that may mean to, you know, and conjoin that with the kind of response we've seen to that in terms of this buildup of, of debt and uh, central bank balance sheets and what that may mean to forward-looking economic growth and, by, by extension, forward-looking market return. Um, and then you mentioned valuation. You gotta, you're starting somewhere, right? So your starting point is today. You know, we're buying every day, selling every day. So your starting point is today, and clearly we're starting from a pretty elevated point, which would suggest, again, those low returns. So we, as, as a CIO, we have to figure out within that low return environment, how do we want to position our client portfolios so that they can, with a very high degree of confidence, get their highest portion of those low returns. Um, and then for some clients, Jeff, they may need more. For, beta may not be enough for, for many clients. And in that case, you know, where are the sources of alpha in the market? How can we access them? 
Um, and then the third leg of the stool, I would say, which is incredibly important in a low-rate environment, is what? how do we control what we can control? And there, I think it's all about fees and tax efficiency for private clients. Those things all together, I think, can help, a cl- help, help our advisors build confident portfolios for clients in an environment that may not be as generous uh, for, for on the return side. Well, I want to let Sam ask some questions to you because he, he's telling me I'm too animated today. Uh, but before, so you'd mentioned taxes. I think it's it's very curious you said that is uh, there's a new proposal in the state of California of a new uh, millionaire's type of tax where they want to increase the tax rate. Once again, another 1% on a million dollar income. And some reason it jumps, it jumps to 3% on anything over 2 million. And then weirdly over 5 million jumps to like 3.5%. Seems like it should be five or seven if you're extrapolating there. But, um, you know, would your advice be to uh, those of us in California, if we ever get to that strata of income, uh, the best tax strategy is to leave? You know what, Jeff, it's a very good question. And it's a it's an exercise that we go through on a regular basis with clients who live in New York, who live in California. Um, you know, it's a math exercise. I mean, there's two, obviously there's two, you're using both sides of the brain for this one, right? There's a math exercise and then there's the, you know, I actually have to move part of the uh, equation. Um, but yeah, at a certain point, um, especially if you think about it over a lifetime and then bring it back, uh, whether you want to look at future value or present value, it's, it's, it can be substantial. Yeah, no, fair enough. So, um, Sam, uh, we'll do that for you, Jeff. We'll we'll do that exercise for you. (laughs) Yeah, I I figured you you would if I ever get fortunate (laughs) enough to get to that strata, like I mentioned. Um, But anyway, um, yeah, and you're always hearing those stories about how people are fleeing, you know, looking to flee or have fled California. But I I don't know. I I haven't really seen it happen yet, at least amongst the people, you know, that uh, that we speak with often. Um, But although Elon Musk looks like he's uh, looking ready, looking ready to to move out to Texas. Um, right. It's operations there. So, but one thing I wanted to, to touch on, uh, Katie, that you mentioned before is just the idea of the goals based, re, you know, um, investing. And one of the primary goals that many investors have is, you know, retirement. And given what we've seen in markets, you know, on a year to date basis, despite the recovery, it has to be causing a lot of jitters amongst, you know, some of the, the clients that your advisors have been speaking with. Um, particularly those who do have the shorter runway and are closer to to retirement. Or what are some of the conversations that uh, you guys have been having with those individuals? And you know how how can you go about talking to them in terms of the challenges of today's market? Right. So I, what I think is so interesting, and I I, I I thought about this during the 2008 2009 crisis. Like if you had just like Rip Van Winkled yourself and fallen asleep in 2008 and then woke up and in 2019 and you know someone told you what happened you wouldn't you wouldn't have believed it right you wouldn't have believed that the market would have recovered you wouldn't have believed what happened at the fed and i think it, i thought about that just today when i looked at the re, that the um, return of a 6040 portfolio 6040 portfolio is up for the year um, you know the s&p is up for the year obviously there's been a nice return from bonds so you've got like a 1.3, 1.4%. So investors actually feel okay about this year, you know, given everything that's that's happened. Um, you know, given the alternative, which is, you know, we could be in a deep, deep depression and we could see the market still down 40, 45%. 
So investors aren't um, aren't that worried about the the right now um, because they have clawed out of a really deep hole. I think the problem, as you said, Sam, is really really the forward looking environment. And when you're talking about treasuries that have, you know, our, our central tendency for the 10 years around 50 basis points, and we don't think the Fed's going to raise rates for five years. So but fixed income is going to have to change its name, and it's just going to be called fixed because um, there's not going to be a lot of return there. So the question is, how much risk should you take and how much risk can you take? You are an older investor. Um, I mean, here's the thing, too. Like, I talk about a short runway. The fact of the matter is we are actually living much longer. So you got a plan for, you know, uh, you, you can retire and you've got a plan for a 20-year runway. And that can either be scary or it can present an opportunity because it does allow you to take a little bit more equity risk. And you may have to. So the old adage of, you know, as you, you, you dramatically de-risk as you get older, I think that's just going to be delayed right now um, as investors are going to focus on risk assets even to generate income. I mean, I saw today the Russell uh, 1000 value has a dividend that's substantially above the ag right now. So even if you're looking at income, if you have a decent enough time horizon, you can take some risk assets. So we're really trying to do that exercise. We're stress testing portfolios for clients to make sure that they're okay with some possible outcomes. Um, but we're trying to get creative about um, about meeting goals in this this kind of a, a, a very difficult environment. Yeah, so I, I think that's an important framework. Is as you know, we uh, we work heavily in the fixed income market, as you call it, the fixed market. Uh, the the barely any income component when you look at some of the risk risk free type of assets, but when you look at your asset allocation, you think about it. What are some of the things that you're warning clients of? Of kind of I usually call it naive extrapolation, right? That phrase was taught to me early in my career that people tend to take most recent experiences and extrapolate them out. Can you imagine all these Robinhood traders and and folks that open these Schwab and TD Fidelity accounts? that came out and just started investing at the end of March, and they're thinking, man, I'm going to make 120 130% per annum because that's the pace it's been on. So uh, to, mm -hmm. to bring back into a real framework, what what are some of the things you're thinking about in asset allocation where you're saying, well, maybe I shouldn't look at history to help guide that? Um, for instance, fixed income. You know, we talked about the tenure being roughly 50 basis points or so today. Um, you know, do you get the diversification on that? So how, how are you incorporating kind of this – new world on a prospective basis, given or in, at least relative to the lens of history? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm a, a, a bit like on both sides of that coin, Jeff, because on the one side, I, I hate to say it's different this time. And I have, I mean, I've been doing this for a really long time. And I heard all throughout 2008, 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, Fixed income is not going to be a diversifier. Don't own fixed income. Rates are going to go up and bond investors are going to get crushed. And it just didn't happen. And during times of stress, what helps portfolios? Fixed income. So we are still big believers in high quality fixed income as a diversifier in, an, in a capital market where there are very few sources of diversification. Sure. And again, I point investors to exhibit A, which is 2008, 2009, and Exhibit B, which is March of 2020. Everything goes down. It doesn't matter what you own. Everything goes down. So we had hiccups, obviously, in high-quality fixed income based on liquidity constraints, but it did provide diversification benefits. So I really 
we spend a lot of time trying to advise clients that when, when you think it's different, check yourself because it may not be different. Um, so that, that I think is, um, is, is really hard. Then I think what, what is problematic with investors today is, is just the recency bias. Extrapolation is, you know, another, another way to think about it. And, you know, there's a lot of resistance to things that we believe are really important for portfolios from a, um, risk asset diversification perspective. Um, for example, buying stocks that aren't large cap tech, large cap us tech stocks. Like there will come a day when we see value start to outperform, when we see non-U.S. equities start to outperform, um, and we want to position our portfolios to be um, to take advantage of that. But it's really, really hard when it hasn't happened for so long. So those are, I think, some of the big challenges that advisors have right now is um, this this real recency bias um, in some cases, and it's not even recent, it's a long-term bias in other cases towards things like large cap U.S., uh, things like U.S. in general. Um, and there, I think investors could leave a lot of money on the table going forward if they continue to have that myopic view of the opportunity set. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And uh, you can even get more narrower and say large cap tech, and then you can pick the yeah. names that just continue to uh, grind tighter and tighter and and trade at very stretched valuation. So um, I, I would. Yeah, and again, the market. We believe the market's efficient too, Jeff. Like I'm not. I'm not here to say tech is way overvalued, and it may not be an either or. Maybe it's both and. Everything can can do okay. And I I understand why investors are flocking to these stocks. I mean, we'll hear you know tonight from from the biggies um, announcing earnings and. You know, compared to down 40% for, uh, you know, the, the S&P for, for second quarter, they're probably going to be pretty decent. <laughs> so investors are, are hiding in this, this soft, cushiony safety of, uh, of these large, uh, large fang names, and they're overpaying for the privilege. Um, but it makes sense to me that they're doing that in the absence of any certainty. I mean, Sam, as you said, you know, the macro picture looks terrible, and I think the outlook looks even murkier than we thought it would look just a couple of months ago when we were expecting the U.S. economy to just reopen, and we were worried about a second wave. No one was worried about a spike in the first wave. So the, the outlook is, is super uncertain over a short term. Yeah, and we talk about that. One of the things, you know, when we're talking about risk, one of the risks that has been stubbornly elusive, um, it sounds odd to say it in that context that we're actually hoping for this type of risk to come back, at least some of us are, is inflation. You know, I mean, much to many of Fed chairperson, you know, in, in the past few years or even decades, it's, you know, much of their chagrin, it's just been so elusive. But when we start, you know, I started thinking about it as we're talking about bonds here and, you know, th that we should just be calling them fixed, um, at least they're a positive on the nominal yield, right? But when we start thinking about it from a context of the, the real yield and how massively negative it's been in the, you know, despite the, you know, despite the, you know, low, low inflation rates, you know, what are your thoughts on inflation and is it even on your radar yeah. at this point? I mean, it's such a good question. One of the things that I'll pop in before I answer the the, the outlook question is um, most of our clients, and I think most individuals, think that the you know published CPI way underestimates inflation. So their cost of living, which is sort of how people intuitively think about inflation, um, most think has gone up. Uh, so they don't. They've never sort of bought into this low inflation environment. However, that being said. 
um, we've we've recognized that from a CPI level and a PCE level, um, you know, over the last 10 years, we've had a stuckflation theme where we believed inflation would be really stuck in this low and very narrow range. And part of it was because of obviously that the the increased use of technology and and the impact that that was having, and you know the the substitution of uh, of capital for labor, which was obviously having having its own disinflationary impacts. Um, and then we enter this period where we've had this incredible demand shock, um, which to me suggests, and we have an outlook and a forecast for a very slow stutter step recovery. I was talking with our chief economist this morning. He called it a sawtooth recovery. So we've moved from the alphabet into, I guess, the toolbox at this point. But who knows? Our our outlook, though, is for it to be gradual and uneven. That, to me, does not suggest with such a shock and such a slow recovery that inflation is going to be a major issue over the near term. Now, Again, I hate to say never, never say never, but this amount of liquidity in the system, this amount of liquidity sloshing around, and probably will get more, will get bigger, you know, as the Fed does more things, as as uh, as as Congress does more, we'll have more liquidity in the system. Um, we have to watch that really, really carefully, Sam, because I think you know it's all about how expectations shift. It doesn't even have to be actual inflation. All we need to see is expectations shifting um, in order to put that very front and center on our radar. So right now, it's not a concern, um, but we're not discounting it in the same way that we did coming out of the last crisis, particularly because of the um, of the response to this crisis. Now, I will say, and I'm interested in what you guys think, I think it's interesting that you know we're hearing so much about inflation over the last couple of weeks because we've had this uptick in break-evens. They're still below well below the Fed's 2% target, um, and they've recovered off what, what was a almost a deflationary base back in March. So that doesn't really freak me out as much as it does, I guess, some others. Yeah, I think in there's, terms there's of being been, a signal of inflation, yeah. Well, for, first of all, you don't get to ask the question, Katie. You're the guest, but um, <laughs> you know, because I can't shut up. It's, as uh, some of our people on Twitter said, why don't you shut up and let the guest talk? Uh, I'm not going to do that because that's why it's called the Sherman Show. Uh, but anyway, that's, <laughs> that said, um, I do think that there is something in there too that you've just seen this diminishing of real yields, but the nominal seems to be pinned down. And so um, right. I'll give a hat tip to one of the economists out there we follow. We've had him on the show a couple of times named Jim Bianco. And he he kind of attributes a fair amount of that break-even jump being to the Fed buying munis. I'm sorry, munis, buying tips as well. And so, see, I've mm-hmm. got the taxes on the brain all of a sudden now with the munis. <laughs> uh, no, but buying tips. And so, what, when you talk about break-even spreads, it's a, that's the rate of inflation, which makes you agnostic of owning a nominal treasury, which is a traditional treasury, versus owning the inflation adjuster, the tips. And so, because the Fed is also buying tips in their QE toolkit, um, he's contended that you know break-evens aren't as meaningful anymore. Um, yeah. And then again, that, that would lead over to the inflation swap market as well, because that's how you kind of hedge that position. So, um, I you know I've 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 kind of uh, at first I didn't buy a lot into that, but looking at the data a little bit more, and I always got to give a hat tip to Jim because he he is a good economist. Uh, I think there is some merit to that as well. But I think you pointed out what I think is the more significant part is expectations because 
expectations, as with everything, drive the market. We're talking about stocks, right? It's the expectations. Very, it's not, you can have horrible earnings, but if they beat, they, it can do well for the stock. But inflation is definitely that way. Think about it, you know, in the housing market, for those of you that don't really understand inflation well, to our listeners out there, if, if you think that other people are going to bid up the price of a house, you may be more willing to pay a higher price for that. So if that, that psyche and that behavior takes over, that causes inflation. And I think what you brought up, Katie, even though I'm long-winded today, what you brought up is very important here because you talked about the congressional programs. You talk about the fiscal programs, um, how important they've been. Well, also think about that where people have been talking about there being a bit of a shortage of labor because people have been disincentivized to come back to work. Well, if we throw more money at these programs, then employers need labor, right? Capital can't get it done. They need labor. They have to pay higher wages too. So it could be this fiscal could lead to a higher level of inflation in not just the traditional sense of spending, but also to bring that competitive spirit back to labor markets. What do you think about that? It's possible, but I think it, even if we look at the last recession, I mean, this is obviously every recession is a little bit different, but if we look at the last recession, labor recovers much more slowly. So I don't see this as a light switch moment where uh, companies are going to have to compete for for a limited labor pool. I see this as a much slower grind towards, uh, you know, maybe we'll hit, you know, low double digit employment by the end of unemployment by the end of the year. So it's something to definitely keep keep our eyes on, Jeff. But I just don't see the signs yet of that of that happening, given our given our outlook now. If and again, we 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 think that we're going to recover eventually. Um, but it seems like from the data we got today, as well as uh, some of the confidence data that you referenced, you know, people are very uncertain right now. I think the path of the virus is going to dictate everything that happens in the next three, six months. And that has proved itself to be a very difficult uh, thing to forecast. So I think things are going to be even slower for even longer. So again, it doesn't, doesn't suggest inflation. And you mentioned housing. And I know you've talked a lot about this um, on, on some of your other, uh, other podcasts. And it's so interesting, you know, the pressure on, um, on the market right now is based on there not being a lot of supply um, in the, in the, uh, existing homes, um, you know, that supply could could open up it, when the economy opens up. And at the same time, I think what you're seeing in some of these major cities is rents just plunging. Right. Um, so that that I think is going to be very interesting to see um, to see how that all pans out from an inflation perspective. Yeah, well, also the new housing data had been replaced by a lot of multifamily. That would have been the trend for the last decade or so in this post-global financial crisis era. And then now all of a sudden, you know, there's there's less attractiveness in some instances of people wanting to live in cities because of the decimation, just in, in general, the conditions and again, working remotely. But I'll come back to your, your inflation on the job side, too, because I want to ask one other question there, because I, I do agree with your assessment. And as we look at an earnings season, you're seeing now the layoffs come. The layoffs come. Oh, yeah, second just, wave. Mm -hmm. Right. The second wave. And it's coming into not just the bottom uh, kind of strata or cohort of incomes, but now it's starting to bleed across uh, across multiple industries as well. And so when we were talking about upward pressure on wages, 
I think you have to think about the composition of the economy too. And what's really been eradicated due to the shutdown is a lot of small businesses. And so mm -hmm. corporate America has to manage, a lot of it has to manage to earnings. So they're gonna cut jobs where you know the small businesses have been decimated. And so you don't have as much competition there. So how, how do you think about that infecting, affecting your forward looking thoughts on both the employment market as well as the inflation component of that? Yeah. So I think, I mean, I think it reinforces that there's probably not going to be a lot of um, increases in unit labor costs, put it that way. Because I do think that the, I mean, here we all are sitting at home being very productive, using a lot of technology. So I think, you know, we will, hopefully we'll see some productivity enhancements. Um, but I think what you just outlined is, is you know, it underpins a, a a lower inflation trajectory. But I also think what's interesting that you just highlighted, Jeff, is the difference between the market and the economy, right? Yeah. Is, you know, we get asked that question all the time, which is, you know, how in the world can the market go up and the um, economy is so terrible? And you mentioned all the small businesses. We get the Yelp data suggesting that, you know, a, a, a hefty portion of uh, the businesses that closed down temporarily during the crisis will never open again. Yeah. Um, we all have stories, you know, I know you you guys are sitting there in, in California. I'm sitting here in New York. We have stories in our towns and our cities of, of, you know, blocks of businesses that are just closed and that, that won't reopen yet. The, the market is very, very different than the economy. The market doesn't have this exposure to travel and leisure. It doesn't have this exposure to restaurants and, and hairdressers and barbershops. It just is very, it's a very different beast. And I think that's a tough thing for, for people to wrap their heads around. Yeah, um, that, I think that I think that's going to present yeah. a challenge as we go to the voting booths in in less than a hundred days now, and people look at that and say, okay, we have this double-digit unemployment rate. It's one of the risks we talked about before of you know the economy isn't doing well, but then you have the market doing well, and then you know it it looks like the plutocrats or the you know the the top one percenters are just the ones that are always winning. And so I think that that's something yeah. to think about. Not not as an investor. There may be, you know, there may be ramifications, but definitely the societal impacts. And I think that's becoming a bigger discussion now, and especially as you sit down with clients, where they're thinking about that. So, um, you know, for those of you in a good position, maybe maybe it encourages more uh, philanthropic work. You know, the ability to to help others, and you know, also don't never never discount the the American spirit and the ingenuity we have. That for all those businesses shutting down, that someone will be out there wanting to take that risk as well. So hopefully, oh, absolutely. you, can't, you can't count out the the American spirit here at all. But I will say, Jeff, to your point, what we have seen, uh, which obviously is is very heartening, is we have seen a real increase in philanthropy, um, a different kind of philanthropy, uh, where we had, um, you know, so many clients want to give very locally and very strategically um, to local food banks and crisis centers and uh, healthcare issue around healthcare issues. So we have really seen um, generosity during this time. But I think what you reference also re reinforces something you guys also talked about at the beginning of the call, and that is the, the need for these bridges to be f uh, sustained, these fiscal and monetary bridges to be fortified. Because to your point, Jeff, about the, the election, we can still have 10, 11, even 12% unemployment coming to the election as long as people have income. I mean, this is an income recession right now. Right. Um, different, again, than 2008, 2009. 
So as long as we can keep the income levels um, at a sustained level, um, I think the voters uh, are willing to accept, you know, a dicey economic outlook because they'll have some cash flow coming in, which is, again, why it's so important to the the point you made earlier, whether it's $600 or $300, the supplemental unemployment benefits have to be extended. Um, The chasm between the House um, and the Senate right now seems to be pretty large. I'm not surprised, though. This seems to be par for the course in terms of how these things are negotiated. Uh, So I do expect, as you do, that we'll get some sort of a deal that will come out, you know, a squeaker will come out in the nick of time. Um, but time certainly is is ticking. Yeah, people forget that that um, you know we, we asked everybody to stay home. We we don't want people out. We don't want people spreading the virus, and so we've asked them to do that. So we need to help them as well. Yeah. So so Sam, we want to close you know, us out here. We're getting short on time, but before we jump to the end, I, I think you have one more. Yeah, I just I mean I wanted to ask uh, Katie, you've accomplished so much, you know, in your career. It's just a, a wealth, a literal wealth of wisdom there, and I just wanted to see if you could. Uh, Share some you know, pearls of wisdom or drop some pearls of wisdom on us uh, and our listeners on career advice or anything you might uh, just want to share. Gosh, so I get asked this question all the time, and I have probably a very insufficient answer to it. Um, my best advice for anybody is, I mean, the obvious is, find something you really love and that you're interested in, that you're curious about. And I get up every morning and I love research. I love digging into what makes this job important and what makes it special. But the the, the very practical advice I would give someone is find a mentor, find someone who's not just someone you can bounce ideas off of, but someone who is an active advocate for you. Um, and that has been, I would say my, secret to career success to the extent that I have have been successful. It's been because I've had very, very strong mentors around me and advocates around me who helped put me in the position of being able to exercise that curiosity and get get good at what I wanted to do. So maybe not not the best answer, but it's it's true. No, I think it's a great answer. I got one of my mentors right here. On the yeah, show. Katie, you, Katie, you you were one of Sam's mentors, so thanks uh, thanks for coming on the show. Today. Uh, no, uh, no, I, I you know like uh, we, we've been familiar with you for a long time. We've obviously worked another in trust for a long time, so we have a lot of respect for your organization. I think the stuff you're pulling together is great. So, Katie, um, how can people you know get insight from you? Where can they read about you? What's the best way to kind of get in contact with you and, and stay up to date on your thinking? The best way is through our website, northerntrust.com. You can find me there, contact me through that website, and we love to hear from people, love ideas on what we can be doing better, love to uh, communicate as much as possible. So, yeah, reach out through the website. Okay, great, Katie. Uh, we did have one guest give out his personal cell phone number. So um, I, I was oh, like, right. still the same just just back by that. Yeah, I, I don't recommend that, uh, but I think that was a great way to respond to that. So again, thanks for your time, Katie. It was a pleasure having you. But before we let you go, Sam has a favorite part of the show that he wants to do before you leave. So Sam? All right, and that favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. And Katie, what I'll do is I'll offer a series of alternating unique prompts to Jeff Sherman and yourself, and to which you'll provide a top of mind response. 
I'll offer the first one to Sherman as an example, and that would be vaccine. Hopeful. Oh, and one thing, uh, Katie, we tried to keep limit the, the number of words in terms of the, the response. So the, the one for you is uh, fed, fight or flight, or sorry, fight or follow. I can't even read right here. Follow. Sherman, price inflation. Price inflation. Is there any other kind? Wage. Uh, oh, okay. Wage. Oh, okay. You sound like an employer. Um, <laughs> just, I was yeah. following on yours. Yeah. It's you disinflationary. I mean, it's low. Low. Unemployment insurance. Necessary. Coin. Shortage is what I keep hearing about. I'm trying to figure out who's transacting in cash to need all these coins all of a sudden. Maybe it's <laughs> Everywhere I go, it says we only take a credit card because they don't want to exchange with you, right? So I know. Well, I, I actually Googled, Jeff, how much copper is in pennies. Because yes. I see the price of copper going up so much. And like before 1982, pennies were 95% copper. So, right. you know. Yeah, the thing is, remember, Katie, uh, it is illegal to destroy currency yourself. So if you smelt it down and take it and say and tell them what you did, you could be arrested. Um, but that said, um, again, that that's a, just that between just, us. Yeah, maybe that's just you, me, and our four listeners. Okay. <laughs> so we don't recommend that getting arrested part. So yield curve control. Likely. A toolbox. Infinite. <laughs> they keep making it up, right, as they go along. Yeah, ever expanding. Yeah. Retirement. Later. State taxes. Ugh. All right. Thank, I'll, I'm actually, I'll give a shout out to the government for salt. Katie will appreciate that. Thanks for the double taxation due to state taxes. <laughs> And the last one for today goes to Katie, and that's 2020. Oh my gosh, what do I say about 2020? Um, how about unprecedented? <laughs> An overused word, but I will end with unprecedented. Yeah, it's been unprecedented number of uses this year, an unprecedented number of uses. So, uh, no, <laughs> that was great. It's a bull market and unprecedented. Right, exactly. So, um, but many thanks again for coming on. For uh, those of you not aware, remember this has been Katie Nixon. She's the CIO for the Wealth Management Business at Northern Trust. Uh, she's got a lot of experience out there. Please reach out to her at the Northern Trust website if you uh, if you need any advice or just someone to chat with. Uh, we find it always very useful. So, Katie, thanks again for your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff, and thanks, Sam. Great to spend time with you both. Absolutely. And for the listeners out there, uh, don't forget to follow us on the Twitter. Our handle is at Sherman Show Pod. Uh, we'll put up some charts. We appreciate the uh, the newfound hate for us. Um, we're taking it very personal. So we appreciate that. It gives us a reason to keep doing this and keep striving out there. If you want to send us feedback, both in the kind variety or the hate variety, please, you can email us at the, the email address is shermanshow at doubleline.com. Uh, we'll have uh, someone get back to you depending on the the tone of the conversation you're using. Just notice there's been a lot more, um, uh, a little divisiveness out there. So with that, uh, you can follow us on the, on the Google, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify. 
and obviously the doubleline.com website. So thanks again, Katie. We enjoy it. Tune in. We're going to take a hiatus because, again, there's been too much hate. we got to build up some thicker skin. Uh, we'll come back to you guys in September. Uh, we'll be publishing some new stuff with some new guests, as interesting, probably not as much as Katie, uh, but we'll have some new guests out there. So stay tuned for that. Take care, everyone. Have a good summer, and we'll speak soon. audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2020 DoubleLine Capital.